on today's episode of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast, we'll be talking about the Patriots' upcoming showdown with the Buffalo Bills in Buffalo on Monday night and keys to the game for what the Patriots can do to be successful. We will also take a look at the Thursday, Thursday night game from last night between the Saints and the Cowboys and what that means for both teams going forward. We will also take a look at Week 13 around the rest of the NFL and take a look at each of the games as the playoff stretch is uh, we're in the thick of the playoff stretch right now. We will also take a look at some news and notes from around the NFL. Uh, then we will get to the NHL, talk about the Bruins and their recent play and what's been going on. Been a lot of news recently. Jake DeBrusque, Brad Marchand kind of in the middle of some news stories. So we'll get to both of those. We will also get to um, the upcoming games for the Bruins and how it's very important for certain guys uh, to step up as they will be getting no help from Providence due to their COVID issues. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we will also then get into talking around the rest of the league, news and notes from around the league, taking a look at some standings as uh, where teams stand in early December. We will then get to the NBA, talk about the Celtics, who will be going out west for about about a week and a half. So we'll take a look at the games that they will be playing against some good teams and what they need to do to be successful as the roster seems to be at full strength. Um, We'll then get into talking about Marcus Smart for for a little bit and his role, and he seems to be kind of finding a a groove in it with uh, some high assist numbers over the last couple of games. Then we'll get into some news and notes from around the NBA. Then we will get to Major League Baseball and give you guys a uh, look at what the lockout is looking like and what is going on and when it could possibly be um, ended. Um, Then we will take a look at some off-season moves the Red Sox have made, um, including a trade to bring Jackie Bradley Jr. back to Boston. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll also talk about some of the big signings that we've seen uh, so far in the baseball off-season. Then we will get into talking a little bit about college football with the uh, championship games or conference championship games going on this weekend. So give you guys uh, some thoughts about those games and how that might affect the final CFP rankings on Sunday. Um, Then I'll also give you guys some thoughts on the coaching hires that took place last week for USC and for LSU. And then we will talk about the Revolution, who unfortunately got eliminated from the playoffs this past week. So we will break down the game and take a look at uh, what's next for the team. So let's go. And what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. Uh, sorry for the lack of announcement last week, but uh, obviously with Thanksgiving and, uh, and Friday off uh, for most people, uh, we 
decided to take take a week break, you know, give everyone a, a break to have, you know, Thanksgiving and, and time with their families. So I hope everyone enjoyed their uh, Thanksgiving, had a happy and, and healthy Thanksgiving, and got to spend time with, with family. So uh, we're back two weeks later, and uh, there is plenty of stuff to get to today. There is Patriots, there's Bruins, there's Celtics, you know, there's baseball with the lockout and all that. It's pretty crazy. And then we got college football, even uh, talking about the Revs, you know, unfortunately, it's not uh, talking about them in the way that I would like to talk about them. But, you know, it is the reality of uh, the situation. So we'll, we'll get to them too. Uh, but as always, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at not Boston on Twitter, and then not your average Boston sports podcast on Facebook. And you can listen on Spotify. You can listen on Apple Music. Give a, a, a star rating, a review if you like. I'd really appreciate that um, on Apple Music. So let's uh, let's just get into it. Uh, Patriots with uh, arguably their biggest game of the season uh, to to this date um, on Monday night against the Buffalo Bills. You know this was. Even at the beginning of the season, I think this was a game that you circled on your calendar and said, okay, if the Patriots are, you know, hopeful to make the playoffs, if they're in a good position in week 13, this is going to be a huge game. And lo and behold, the Patriots actually have a better record than the Buffalo Bills, which is insane to think about, you know, when you thought about this team at week one, you know, or even after falling to 0-2, falling to 1-3. and you know, two and four, you know, I don't think a lot of people, including myself, saw them winning six in a row and, you know, being in the position that they're in and going into this game. So, you know, it's uh, a big, big run of games against really good teams. And the Patriots, you know, passed the test last week against the Titans. Yes, the Titans were missing, you know, almost all of their big time key offensive players, but Still, it's a it was a solid win. It was a good win to feel happy about if you're a Patriots fan. So I think, you know, going into this Buffalo game, I think you want to continue to be opportunistic defensively, continue to, you know, run the ball and try to, you know, be efficient on offense. And I think that, you know, you're missing a little bit of that in the in the Titans game. You know, the, the red zone offense was not necessarily at its best, but I do think that, you know, you, you did enough to win defensively. You were able to come up with some big plays um, with the the fumbles and the interception, uh, which was huge. So, you know, I think this game against Buffalo, you know, may come down to similar types of things. You know, how can you, can you win the turnover battle? You know, can you score touchdowns in the red zone? Because, you know, this Buffalo team, I think, is a lot different than Tennessee. Tennessee is going to be a team that's going to try to run it down your throat, and they're going to try to, you know, make you stop them, which is, you know, kind of crazy because it's like the Patriots, those turnovers were huge. You know, if they didn't get those turnovers, chances are that game would have been much, much different. But obviously, you got the turnovers. But I think, like, going against this Buffalo team that's going to try to pass the ball, they're a pretty solid run team, although they're not a team that tries to establish the run, um, it's going to be a challenging game because you're faced with an offense that I think you've not really faced an offense this dynamic 
really since the Dallas game. You know, I think that this is an offense that can hurt you in so many different ways. You have a guy like Josh Allen who can make plays out of the pocket, and I think that's the biggest thing. One of the biggest things for them defensively is to keep him in the pocket and not let him escape. You know, he's much like Mahomes in that he can, you know, make plays on the run. Not that he necessarily can, like, make all the same throws that Mahomes can make, but he can also make plays with his legs. I think he's much more dynamic with his legs than Mahomes is. Um, But I think keeping him in the pocket is going to be a huge thing for the Patriots um, in this game. I think that that's going to be one of the keys for them. Um, The other thing, I think, is to try to get back to the run game. And the Patriots definitely you know, kept at it in that, in that Titans game, despite the Titans really being able to kind of shut them down for most of the first half. You know, and I think the Patriots were able to run the ball later in the second half because I think that Titans defense was tired um, and the Patriots were kind of able to take advantage of that, you know, a game that they were up two touchdowns and they just kind of have to run the clock out. They were able to do that with the run game, but I think you would like to see the run game be more established in the first half so that the Patriots are as balanced as they can be because I think trying to throw the ball against this Bills defense is going to be a challenge. You know, I think it is a massive loss that the Bills lost Tredavious White on Thanksgiving, Um, and I think that that's going to be a big part of the game. But Buffalo still is a great pass, pass defense, and I think that, you know, this is a game that Mac Jones really has to take care of the ball, and I think that Sure, missed some throws in that Titans game. I think that's fair to say, but he did also play a really solid game, I thought. You know, over 300 yards set a career high with the passing passing yardage um, and had a couple touchdowns to uh, Kendrick Bourne. You know, that first touchdown was a beautiful throw. You know, Bourne, back of the end zone, jump ball type, type throw, and that was huge. And then he was able to get the other touchdown pass to Bourne on a tremendous individual effort, but... You know, I think as much as people want to say that Mac Jones did not play a good game against the Titans, I don't think that's true. I mean, sure, you had a play that was almost intercepted, and then you had a, a throw which was kind of a not not a great overthrow on the touch on the potential touchdown to, to Hunter Henry. But I think that for the most part, he played a pretty solid game. But you really need him to be at his absolute best in this game. Um, you know, and I think really the third thing is probably going to be simple, and it's something I kind of just touched on, is a turnover battle. You know, I really think that this is a game where mistakes and turnovers really could be the difference um, in this game. So the Patriots, you know, continue to try to be opportunistic, which they really were against the Titans. Um, you know, with the two with the two fumbles and then the interception. So I think that was that was huge that they were able to to do that. But I think, you know, this is a game that, yeah, you want to definitely win the, the turnover battle. You know, and I think it's interesting because, you know, the, the Patriots have been pretty consistent over the last six weeks. You know, whatever time period you want to use, Buffalo's not exactly been, you know, the best team in the league over the last couple of weeks. They've had some you know, good games, good games against teams that, you know, you expect them to have good games against, but then, you know, I've had a couple of pretty, pretty ugly losses. You know, you think about the loss to, to Jacksonville, you think about the loss to the Colts, you know, the week before Thanksgiving. So I think, 
you know, it's going to be interesting to see what Buffalo team you see in this game. But I will say that, you know, this is one of those division games that I think no matter what the team looks like, the team is going to get up to play the Patriots. And I know that, you know, it kind of does matter a little bit what the team looks like, you know, if it's the Jets or if it's the Dolphins or if it's the Bills. But I think that, you know, I wouldn't expect that the Bills are going to have a stinker of a game. Like, I don't think that this is going to be a game where the Patriots blow them out. I mean, this could very well come down to a last possession. It is also interesting to note that the the weather in this game is going to be pretty crazy. You know, it sounds like there are um, some reports that it could be snowy. It could be kind of an ugly, not a good, you know, it could be one of those ugly weather games. Um, and I think that, you know, that leads you to believe that the running game is going to be really, really important for both teams. Um, but, you know, it's just the Patriots have found ways to win, you know, and I think that that's really been kind of the, the story of the six-game winning streak for this team that, you know, one part of the game does not play the best, but then there's another part of the game that picks picks the other part up. You know, I really thought that the defense was able to pick up the offense in the sense that the offense kind of struggled a little bit in the red zone, but the defense was able to pick them up with some turnovers. Um, you know, you're hoping that this Buffalo game can be one of their bigger or one of their better performances of the year, you know, going against a good team and going against a team that you're battling the division for. So, you know, this is going to be a, you know, this is, this is going to be a, it's going to be a dogfight, I think, in, in this game. And I also think, you know, that when you play the Bills again um, later in December at Gillette, you know, it could be a very similar type of game. Um, the Patriots, you know, are in a pretty, you know, important part of their schedule. You know, I think that this, these next four were going to be huge. You know, Titans, Bills twice, and then you have to go on the road to play the Colts. Um, you know, a team that's not to be taken lightly, I think, at this point. Um, but I think in terms of thinking about this game, I do like the Patriots. You know, I think that they can win this game. But, you know, holding on to the ball and winning the turnover battle, I think, is going to be the most important part of this game. But I also think... Trying to establish the run game is a big part of this game, and I think trying to keep Josh Allen in the pocket and not let him get out of the pocket and try to improvise, because you know he's one of the one of the most dangerous quarterbacks in the league when he gets out of the pocket, because he is just a matchup nightmare that he's pretty hard to bring down, and you know can make plays throwing on the run or you know just buying a lot of time. So this will be a big game, but. I think the Patriots win by a field goal. I think that that's that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a 21 to 18, 20 to 17. You're going to see something like that. Um, but I do expect the Patriots to win and go into the bye with um, a big divisional win. So looking at the rest of the NFL for Week 13, we'll take a look at um, the Cowboys and the Saints played last night Thursday night football. Um, this was a, this was, this was kind of an interesting game because, you know, the Saints were coming to this game really needing a win and the Cowboys, you know, coming off of that tough Thanksgiving loss last week, you know, trying to get into a rhythm offensively, um, and the Cowboys, you know, I think played better offensively. It certainly wasn't exactly where it needed to be. You know, Dak Prescott 
had an all right game, you know, 26 of 40 to 238 and a touchdown and did also the pick. But I think really the difference in this game was the second half Dallas able to get the turnovers, get the touchdown run from Tony Pollard. Um, and that kind of was the story of the game. You know, the Cowboys coming into the game, missing Mike McCarthy, missing some other players due to the COVID protocols. Um, but I thought they really had a good, solid road win as their fourth road win of the season. They're now eight and four. Um, you know, the Saints, I think just hard to expect, hard to know what to expect with this team offensively with Trevor Simeon playing at quarterback the last few games. Taysom Hill was in, you know, played pretty well in the first half, but then just it all kind of just came apart late in the, in the game with the four interceptions that he ended up throwing. One was returned for a touchdown. Um, but it just is uh, strange to see the Saints being a team that, you know, struggle struggle on offense, you know, for years having Breeze, Alvin Kamara, and uh, Michael Thomas. You know, Thomas obviously is out for the year, and Kamara has not played the last couple games. So um, really just kind of a good, solid defensive game by the Cowboys. Did enough to win offensively. You know, I think this was a little bit similar to the Patriots game in um, Atlanta two weeks ago, you know, and that the offense did not play its best, but the defense was able to come up with some big plays, you know, four interceptions for the Cowboys defense. Um, C.D. Lamb was back in the lineup for Dallas, seven receptions. Oh, wait, no, it was Cooper. It was Cooper that was back in the lineup after missing a couple games. He had two receptions for 41 yards. And then with... The four interceptions, Dallas defense was pretty good um, in this game. So Cowboys improved to 8-4, and four. Saints dropped to 5-7 and seven on the season. So taking a look at uh, some Week 13 games, the uh, Buccaneers look to get their ninth win of the season facing off against the Falcons. Falcons are 5-6, and six, kind of still in the midst of that playoff race, but uh, Tampa Bay seems to be hitting their stride a little bit. They did get some uh, suspensions that came down from the NFL yesterday. Antonio Brown and Mike Edwards, I believe, were fine or were suspended for three games for, um, I think, not being or saying that they were vaccinated, but they were not. So they will miss the next three games uh, for Tampa Bay. Antonio Brown had been out the last few weeks due to various injuries, but Tampa Bay going into Atlanta, Division game, I think Tampa Bay uh, gets the win in this one. Uh, Sunday, 1 o'clock, Arizona traveling to Chicago. Hopefully, Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins are back in the lineup for Arizona. Had their bye last week, so they hope to get everyone healthy for the stretch run. Uh, going up against the Bears. Bears have been a team that were able to get a win last week on Thanksgiving. Uh, thanks to the... Uh, just inability of the Detroit Lions to really do anything right late in that game. Uh, so Chicago got the win. Justin Fields should return for this game, but I think Arizona getting some of their guys back. This is going to be a, a bounce-back week for them as they were you know, surprisingly able to get through some of their games with you know, some backup guys playing. Colt McCoy had a solid game for them their, their last game out, which was kind of hard to believe. Um, but Arizona... 9-2 and two going into this game. I think they get their 10th win of the season. Then a big AFC matchup here. Um, 
in the next game. Give Cincinnati at seven and four, coming off that impressive win against the Steelers last week. Um, and the Chargers have uh, not really been the same team, you know, ever since the Patriots beat them. You know, they've kind of been a team that's done really well one week and then poorly the next week. So we'll see how they respond. But this is a pretty important game for both of these teams uh, to try to maintain a playoff spot. Minnesota travels to Detroit. The Lions coming oh so close to getting their first win last week, coming down to a game-winning field goal by the Bears. They did not do themselves any favors, really kind of just coming apart at the seams late in the game. Uh, so they will get another, they will get a chance to get their first win against Minnesota. Minnesota at five and six coming off a, uh, not a great offensive performance in their last game, but I think Minnesota gets back to 500 with the win. Colts traveling to Houston. Uh, the Colts are coming off a really, really frustrating loss to uh, Tampa Bay last week in which the uh, defense could not stop Leonard Fournette. So um, Indianapolis, I think, looks to get a bounce back win on the road as they are 6-6. Six and six. Take a look at the playoff standings in just a bit, but they are also kind of in the midst of things. And speaking of the playoff mix, you have the uh, Miami Dolphins who will play against the Giants this week. The Dolphins quietly have won four straight games after one and seven starts, so they are kind of quietly getting some getting some attention as a team, um, getting close to a playoff spot potentially. Um, and I think it gets closer. I think they beat the Giants. I think this will be a good game. Uh, but I think the Dolphins win. Dolphins or the uh, Eagles and Jets. The Eagles uh, had some drops that really killed them in last week's game against the Giants. They're five and seven. They come in to play a Jets team coming off a win over Houston last week. I think Philadelphia bounces back on the road with a good offensive performance. Um, and the four the the later afternoon games on Sunday, you have Washington at five and six, Vegas at six and five. Uh, both of those teams, you know, kind of in the in the playoff mix with Washington coming off a uh, very close Monday night win against Seattle. So they will play uh, for a chance to get to 500. Then you got Jacksonville against the Rams. Rams have lost three in a row. They hope to kind of get back on the right track. I think that that happens um, against Jacksonville, but the Rams really have not looked at all like the team that a lot of people were, you know, already crowning as a team that was going to go to the Super Bowl and then, you know, they get Von Miller and Odell Beckham. People are like, oh, they're going to, you know, just go to the Super Bowl without any, without any, you know, challenges, which, you know, is interesting. You've not really seen any team in the NFL right now, you know, break away from the pack. You know, it really seems like this is a year unlike any other where, you know, you really don't have one team that's running away with the league. I mean, Arizona obviously is the best record, but you know, they've not been, they've not really been healthy for four or five, six weeks, you know, so it's like, it's hard to, to take them seriously as a legit team when they've not really been together for a few weeks. So, you know, Rams against Jacksonville, um, and you get 425 on CBS, Baltimore against Pittsburgh. It's a huge game for the Steelers, um, sitting in last place, I think currently in the AFC North, Baltimore was able to get a win on Sunday night football last week despite a really poor performance from Lamar Jackson, but they're able to do enough defensively to get the wins that are 8-3. They will travel 
to Pittsburgh, and then San Francisco and Seattle. Seattle sitting at 3-8 and eight after their loss to Washington. The 49ers are back over 500 after their win against Minnesota last week. In the Sunday night game, you have Denver traveling to Kansas City. Kansas City seems to be getting its swagger back offensively, but this is a Denver team and a defense that's been, you know, one of the more interesting stories in the league this season. You know, Denver this late in the season with a winning record is pretty impressive. So it's a big opportunity for them on a primetime game um, to get a win against Kansas City. A win would tie them for first place in the division, I think. So that probably does it for looking at our, our game previews. Take a look at some news and notes from around the NFL. So Mike McCarthy, obviously not available to coach last night, but did uh, laud the Cowboys' effort in their win last night. Um, Adrian Peterson is joining the Seahawks as he had played. I think he had played a game or two for Tennessee, uh, but they waived him. And he is now on the Seahawks, so he'll get another chance to prove himself a little bit. It's kind of unbelievable that he's still playing, but uh, we'll see. Um, you know, mentioned the Antonio Brown being being suspended for the COVID violations. We'll see how that affects Tampa Bay in the coming weeks. Um, but obviously, Patriots Bills it's a big one. So um, look forward to 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 that game. On Monday night, Monday night, ESPN, Channel 5. It's going to be uh, probably the biggest game of the season, but hopefully the Patriots you know, are able to get a win. It is really important that I think they get a bye after this game. I think is a really well-timed bye, you know, right between their most important four-game stretch of the season. So it'll be interesting to see how they perform um, in Buffalo. You know, it's going to be a tough game, but... Patriots have proven time and time again that they can get the job done. So we'll see how that shakes out on Monday night. So I think that will do it for the NFL. We're going to jump to talking about the Bruins. It's been a very, very interesting week for this team. Um, you know, really been a week unlike any other. You know, it's really four big things that are going on, which is kind of, you know, crazy to think about. But the important thing is the Bruins did get a win last night, and they looked really, really good. I thought that this was a very good response game after the loss to Detroit on Tuesday night. Um, you know, Bruins did did enough to get the win, getting goals from DeBrusque and Carlo, um, and getting a good road win that I think this is a, a win to feel good about um, going into a big matchup with Tampa Bay on Saturday. So... Obviously, the biggest news, and I think the, the thing that's been floating around Bruins Twitter, especially in the last couple of days, um, has been Jake DeBrusque's trade request. And I think that's really been the biggest story with this team this week. Um, and obviously, it's not really been the same for Jake DeBrusque over the last, you know, two plus years. You know, it's been a, a challenge for him to get going. Offensively, it's been a challenge for him bringing effort every game. And I think that, you know, I've been one of those people that, yeah, I've been one of his biggest critics. I think that the only reason why is because I expect a lot more out of him. You know, the way that he played his first two seasons, you know, the play, way that he played his rookie season, that playoff series against Toronto, you know, scoring 27 goals in his second season, you know, really was 
seeming like the Bruins had found a good a good first round talent that you know a lot of people still talk about the 2015 draft that it's kind of been a a whiff for the Bruins and I wouldn't disagree but it just seemed like he really seemed to have found his groove and for whatever reason it's just not really come together for him over the last you know two plus seasons and I think it's not shocking to me that he wants a trade and wants kind of a fresh start and I think that it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. You know, I think that there are plenty of people that I think want him traded. And I think that the Bruins have, have looked to trade him for a pretty, for a pretty long period of time. Um, but I think, you know, just to, it's just not worked out. And I think that it's important to kind of consider the the individual player, you know, and I know a lot of people want to point to, oh, the, the young forwards that the Bruins have had a hard time you know, developing over the years and guys that have had success in other places. But, you know, I think it's very important to consider the individual players rather than kind of the overarching theme. And I'm not going to say that it's not a theme. I'm not going to, you know, ignore the obvious that you've had some guys that have played here in Boston and haven't really, you know, found their footing for whatever reason. And they go elsewhere and maybe find a a better role. You know, I think you're seeing that right now with players like Ryan Donato in Seattle. You know, he seems to be kind of finding a, a niche there and performing. Danton Heinen in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I think it's 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 impossible not to notice that, you know, and think about, oh, okay, you know, could the Bruins have tried something different with these players? But I think oftentimes it's just, it just doesn't work out. I think that all too often, I think we get into a much more deeper thing than it just didn't work out. And it's really, there's nothing else to it other than the player here in Boston, whoever it is, you know, just didn't work out. And this isn't to say that, you know, every young forward that comes through this system and this team, you know, isn't good because, I mean, you've seen Marchand and Bergeron, excuse me, Marchand and Pasternak, you know, be drafted by this team, be developed by this team, and they improve and become really good players. You know, Pasternak was a first-round pick in 2014. I know that he's not played his entire career for one coach. You know, he started his career with Claude Julien, and then, you know, Cassidy stepped in, and he's been arguably one of the best goal scorers in the NHL over the last few years. You know, and I think it's not every single young forward that, you know, struggles here, but it does seem like it's a little bit of a, of a theme. But I think getting back to Jake specifically, you know, it's just not come together for him. And I think that for whatever reason, you know, I think it's just the Bruins, I think, expect a lot, a lot from him. And I think that he's disappointed them over the last few years. And, you know, maybe that's led to it. And maybe that's him thinking that, hey, it's not working out here. I kind of want to get out of here and find a, find a, 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 a different spot that maybe he can flourish. And I think that me personally, I wish him all the best. You know, I hope that the Bruins can can find a good trade partner that he can go somewhere and, you know, improve and perform at a level that he expects to or, you know, we expect him to. Um, you know, I think in terms of a trade partner, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening because I think there are, I think... It's more of a possibility that the Bruins are going to be able to swap him for a forward. You know, I don't think that they're going to be able to get 
a defenseman for him. You know, I think that what you're going to see is the Bruins. One of two things. The Bruins trade him and get some draft picks, maybe two, maybe three. You know, I don't think they're getting a first-round pick out of him. But, I, you know, you could be could, could be wrong. Um, but I also think that they could potentially get a forward that maybe is in a similar situation to Jake DeBrusque, someone that's just in need of a fresh perspective and a player that, you know, is like a like a one-for-one trade. You know, someone like Dylan Strom from the Blackhawks or uh, Maxine Comtois from the uh, Anaheim Ducks. You know, I saw that Max Domi's name has also been out there, um, but I think... know, he's making a little bit more money than DeBrusque. So I think for the Bruins to make a trade like that specifically to work, they would need to, you know, add some more salary to that. But I think just getting back to getting back to Jake, I think he's always been a player that has been a, a favorite of a lot of fans. And I think he's been a guy that people, players in that locker room like having around. And you know, it seemed to be pretty telling to me, you know, you had Taylor Hall and, you know, Bergeron talk about him that, you know, he is liked in that room and this, you know, trade request doesn't change anything that, you know, it doesn't change the way he's treated or perceived in that locker room that they, you know, probably, and they didn't say this, but they probably do want the best for him. And I think that, you know, it's, it's important to remember that there is a you know, person behind the player. And I know that that sounds insane to say, but I think there are some people out there that I think forget that Jake is is a person and not just a player. You know, I think that it's important to remember that he's a guy in that room. He's a member of that team and, you know, the guys like him. There are plenty of fans that like him. You know, I think it'd be very easy for him to just not play, you know, and I think under different circumstances, the Bruins probably would not have him play. Um, but I think based on the circumstances they have, he is playing. But I think, you know, he's in the lineup. Guys still expect him to, you know, play the right way and do the right things. And I think despite a trade request, you know, there's still reason for him to play and reason for him to play well. Um, but I think, you know, it's a trade, trade request doesn't make things different in that room. And I think that that's important. And, you know, I think that it's, I don't know. I think it's unfortunate. Some of the rhetoric that's been coming out in the last couple, in the last day or so that, you know, because he is not filling a request to, you know, talk about his trade request or not, not fulfilling like an interview request to talk about the trade that there are certain people that are labeling him certain things. And I'm not really going to talk about, you know, that specifically, because I just think trying to label him a certain way and trying to, you know, do, I mean, it's just, it it, it just, it just kind of frustrates me, you know, as someone who is a up and coming, Jesus, I probably shouldn't say that, but something like, you know, me being an aspiring journalist, it's just, sometimes it's disappointing to see that there are players that, you know, request a trade or something like that. And there are certain people that have to try to label players a certain way. And I think that it's, 
incredibly unprofessional, in my opinion, to, you know, label a player as, you know, selfish or whatever you want to say. And I just think it's, 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 it's lazy to a certain extent. It's just like, I understand that there are people that would like Jake to, you know, address the trade rumors and try to figure out why exactly he's, you know, requesting a trade. But at the same time, he doesn't have to, you know, like you can put in requests for him to, for him to talk, but he doesn't have to. And I just think like the fact that there are certain people out there that think that they are, you know, owed an explanation is, I don't know. It's just, it makes me feel a certain way that, you know, not to make this into a bigger issue, but it's like, I wish that, you know, we would be a little more respectful of, of athletes and be a little bit more respectful in terms of if someone doesn't want to speak, they don't have to. And to try to label them a certain way because they don't want to, I think is incredibly unprofessional. And it's kind of, it's kind of saddening to a certain extent Um, because I think, you know, if a player wants to talk about it, they can, if they don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But to try to twist this into something else I think it's just incredibly unprofessional to try to twist this into, oh, you know, he's forcing his teammates to say things about him. You know, he's forcing his his mother to stick up for him on Twitter. Like, I just feel like that's just, I don't know. It just, it makes me feel uncomfortable in a certain way that it's just, I don't know. You know, and I tweeted this, like, are we really, are we really doing this? Like, are we really going to make these comments and try to make a guy look so much worse. And, you know, I'll be honest, no, if, if Jake did, did choose to speak, there are certain people that would absolutely try to twist the words that he was saying or to try to, you know, do whatever. And it's just like, you can't win in that situation. I think that there are people that are already kind of, there, there are people kind of already have their opinions of him and anything else that he says is going to be used against him. So um, I'll just be perfectly blunt here. I don't think that he owes the media anything. I don't think that he owes anyone an explanation. And I'll just be perfectly honest. It's not really that difficult to figure out why he wants a trade. I just feel like, why are we suddenly acting like you know, detectives, like, oh, we have to get to the bottom of this. It's like, it's really kind of all out in the open. Like, if you can't figure that out, I don't know, it kind of says a certain thing about you. But anyway, you know, that's really all I'm going to say about this. Um, if you want to ask me more about it, I guess you can you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. But, um, you know, the other big news earlier this week was Brad Marchand getting suspended uh, for three games for a supposed slew foot. Um, early on in the Canucks game on Sunday. Um, so it just, I will say that, you know, one of two things, I'll say the first thing is it's just frustrating and incredibly hypocritical of the NHL that, you know, essentially treating him like an, like a repeat offender, even though their own rules say that if a player has not been suspended, you know, in an 18 month period, they are not they are not considered a repeat offender, but it just seemed like Martian got a little extra because of his reputation. And it just is like, by the letter of the law, he should not have been suspended for three games because there have been guys 
in the NHL that have been suspended a game or have been fined for a very similar offense. And it just seemed like it was unnecessarily targeting Marchand. But I will just say at the same time, I think Brad has to be, um, has to understand that that's the reputation that he has. And any little thing that he does that could be misconstrued or taken the wrong way, you know, is going to be. And I think that, you know, I know that he understands that, not to say that he doesn't get it, but I think you have to be very, very careful. And I think especially considering this team and some of the things they're going through, they really cannot afford to not have him on the ice Um, because it just seems like the last two years or so, he has been a guy that really elevates his team, you know, and to a point that I think he is absolutely one of the most valuable players in the league. Um, Because you see, you know, you can, you can physically see it, how much he affects that team. So I think, you know, it's, you want to have him in the lineup. And I think at a certain point, he does need to know better, but I will also say like the, the punishment absolutely did not fit the crime. You know, I think if you want to suspend him a game, fine, but I think three games is just, is, is excessive. You know, so I think that that's just kind of what it is. Um, Bruce Cassidy also under the COVID-19 protocol. So he um, has missed the last two games, most likely will not be coaching um, on, in Saturday's game against Tampa. be interesting to see if he does make the trip to Western Canada when the Bruins go up there next week. And then also to add another complex to, to add another complication to the Bruins issues right now, is the fact that there is uh, plenty, there are players with uh, Providence, the Providence Bruins have some COVID issues right now. Um, And so they are in a lockdown. They are not sending any players to the Bruins. So, you know, this is also why, you know, the trade request for DeBrus comes at kind of a wild time where probably he, in, in normal circumstances, he probably wouldn't be playing. But because the Bruins have no players that they can call up right now, he kind of has to play. And that's also why, you know, this Martian suspension comes at probably the worst possible time. Um, you know, there are some, you know, good things that have come out of it. You know, the Bruins, I think, have found some line combinations that seem to work a little bit. You know, Eric Hall, after being out of the lineup, looked pretty good last night. You know, Craig Smith, I think, has started to hit his stride a little bit. Um, and I think the Bruins are starting to be a little bit better defensively in their own zone. So, I think that, you know, oftentimes when you have your kind of the walls are closing in around you, so to speak, the Bruins have kind of been playing, playing some good hockey. So I'd be curious to see how that continues. The Bruins obviously have not had great, a great record this year playing against teams with, with winning records or teams in the playoff structure or whatever you want to say. That's a big one against Tampa Bay on Saturday. And it's kind of, you know, too bad that Marshan's going to miss this game. This will be the last game that he misses. Um, but I think you saw some good things from the Bruins last night. Saw some good things from Jeremy Swayman. He was really strong last night. And I think, you know, talking about the goaltending and the goaltending situation that, you know, probably is going to change once Tukaras does sign, does eventually return to the Bruins, you know, and sign a, a contract for the rest of the season, whatever it's going to be. You know, I think that Swayman and Olmark have been pretty solid. You know, I wouldn't say that they've been exceptional, but I think that they've been all right. I think that in some games they've given the Bruins chances to win. 
I think that was the case with Olmark on Tuesday night against Detroit. Um, and then obviously Swayman, you know, with the shutout last night. So, you know, hopefully the Bruins are turning a bit of a corner, but it's not going to get any easier against the Tampa Bay Lightning. And then, you know, in their Western Canada trip that starts next Wednesday, the Bruins will be going to Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary uh, next Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So obviously some some really good teams, you know, in that uh, some really good teams in that um, in that stretch of games. You know, I think that you're seeing I think continued kind of solid production from Charlie Coyle. You know, you're not seeing anything that's blowing you away, but I think, you know, he's one of the guys that has to continue to play well, I think, with the guys in Providence, you know, not being available. Carson Kuhlman has been in the lineup the last couple of games. You know, I thought that he's one of those guys that if you plug in every once in a while, he does give you good energy. Um, you know, I think Halla is a player that really needs to kind of pick it up after being, after being sat out. You know, I think... You know, he's a guy that needs to kind of start performing offensively. I think if the Bruins are going to be a team that's not going to have reinforcements at the moment, um, I will also say that um, probably the only negative part of last night's game was uh, Jakob Saboral uh, leaving the game in the second period after uh, taking a pretty hard hit against the boards. Did not look like he was putting any weight on his right knee, so... You know, obviously that does not look good. So, you know, in all likelihood, Connor Clifton will slide into the lineup um, on Saturday against Tampa Bay. But, you know, I think that you want to continue to get scoring chances and put the puck in the net. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the Bruins can do, you know, if the shutdown lasts longer than this weekend. You know, I know Providence will not be playing games this weekend. Um, but, you know, you would think the Bruins would probably like to have some guys available before they go on their uh, Western Canada, Western Canada trip. So, obviously, Tampa Bay Saturday, Vancouver Wednesday, um, Edmonton Thursday of next week, and then Calgary Saturday of next week. So I think we will take a look at the NHL, take a look at the standings, just some notes from games recently. So let's get to it. Talk about um, some games last night. Dallas, the Dallas Stars have won six in a row. Uh, Jason Robertson with a couple goals last night. Uh, Panthers score seven goals in their 7-4 win over the Sabres last night, rallying from a 3-0 deficit in the first period. Uh, Jack Eichel appears to be back skating on that ice after the uh, successful neck surgery. Um, Minnesota has won five in a row. Uh, Malcolm Subban traded to Buffalo from uh, Chicago the other day. So taking a look at the standings, you know, obviously the Thanksgiving break is usually kind of a, a good indicator of teams that make the playoffs, you know, which is kind of wild, but historically it has been a good indicator of which teams that will make the playoffs. So obviously we're a little bit past that, uh, about a week past that. So, um, but you have uh, some teams that are playing really, really good hockey recently. Washington is one of them. Uh, they are atop the Metro. They have won 
six of their last 10 have gotten points in eight of their last 10. They lead the Metro with 34 points, the Rangers and the Hurricanes both with 31 points. Carolina has come back down to earth after their red-hot start. They've lost three in a row, so they are currently in third place. The Rangers have fewer games played, so that's why they have the lead in the Metro. And then Pittsburgh is in the fourth and final. Or excuse me, now it's top three. I don't know why I thought it was top four, but now it's top three. Washington Rangers and Carolina lead the Metro. Uh, Pittsburgh is six points back of Carolina. Um, in the Atlantic, Florida leads the Atlantic uh, with a game, one fewer game played than Toronto. They actually have the same amount of points. Florida and Toronto both at 35, and then Tampa Bay at 30 points in third place. And then Detroit is uh, three points back of Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay does have two games in hand. The Bruins are currently in fifth place in the Atlantic, six points back of Tampa Bay. So they are currently... So the top three teams in each division make the playoffs, and then it's the next two teams with the most points. So those teams would be Pittsburgh and Detroit. So the Bruins are currently just a point out of that wild card spot behind Pittsburgh. But it is worth noting the Bruins do have uh, plenty of games in hand on most of these teams. So that is the good news, that the Bruins will have plenty of opportunities to make up those points. Um one team that's really been struggling recently is the Islanders. They recently had a uh, COVID outbreak, so they were off for a couple of I think they had a couple of games that were uh, postponed, but a poor start for the Islanders, just five wins in their first 18 games. Montreal is also off to a bad start. They had uh, fired Mark Bergevin, their uh, gen- or now former general manager, and have hired uh, former Rangers GM Jeff Gordon to try to... Uh, rebuild that team that has six wins in their first 25 games. And then taking a look at the Western Conference, Minnesota currently in first place in the Central, a sizable lead over over St. Louis. And then Dallas is currently in the third spot thanks to their six-game win streak. Um, Colorado just a point behind them as they have won eight of ten. And then uh, Chicago, after a pretty bad start, have won 7 of 10. So they've kind of gone, come back to a little bit of respectability, but uh, currently pretty far out from the playoffs. Uh, so Colorado and Nashville, just a point out of third place. And Winnipeg, just two points out of first place. And then in the Pacific, things are a little bit tighter. You have Calgary with a one-point lead over Edmonton. And then Anaheim in third place in the Pacific. They've had a pretty good start to the season. Uh, Ryan Getzlaff playing really well. Troy Terry obviously had that point streak to start the season, so they've been playing really well. And you also have the San Jose Sharks who've won three in a row, so they're starting to they're starting to figure things out a little bit. Vegas is kind of still caught in second gear, just 24 points. They've had a lot of injuries this season. Um, and then Seattle, the expansion team, uh, currently 18 points, uh, tied for last in the Pacific they have had uh, a tough time scoring goals this season and have uh, given up a lot of goals. So that's where they stand. I think take, I'd like to take a quick look at the stats, take a look at some stat leaders for uh, for points. Dreisaitl in Edmonton leads the league by a point over McDavid and three points over Alex Ovechkin, who's had quite a season. 
Um, and then in terms of goals, Drysaddle leads the league with 20 goals, and McDavid leads the league with 25 assists. And then in terms of goaltending, Jake Ottinger leads the league in goals against. It's for uh, goalies that have played three or more games. I'm not sure how many games he's played. I know it's more than three, but it may not be as much as some other guys. But in terms of starters, I think Jack Campbell probably is the best goals against with 172 in Toronto. Also, oh, has a 943 save percentage. He's had a really good start to the season. Jacob Markstrom has been a big reason why Calgary is where they are, as he's had five shutouts. And then Lucas Raymond of the Detroit Red Wings leads all rookies in points with 22. So I think that probably does it for the NHL. I think we'll move on to talk a little bit about the Celtics, who are going on a big West Coast road trip starting tonight in Utah. So they will definitely be um, in for a couple of tough games or a number of tough games, I should say, as the Celtics are out West playing some very, very good teams. They start tonight in Utah. They will play uh, Portland tomorrow night, and then they will play the Lakers and the Clippers on back-to-back nights next week. And then they will play the Phoenix Suns, who have won 18 in a row. So it's going to be definitely a, a challenge for the Celtics, who got a pretty good have had pretty good defensive show, showings in their last two games, wins over Toronto and Philadelphia. So I think that this, you know, trip is going to be really important. It will show, you know, if this team, you know, does have a reason to be optimistic. You know, I think it's been all over the place, you know, in the first 22 games. I think that much like last season, the Celtics have struggled to have a consistently full rotation for, you know, a couple games in a row, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, but I think, you know, you hope that the Celtics can be healthy for a good amount of these games, of these next five games that are going to be really huge. Um, but I think you saw some good things defensively in that Philadelphia game. I think that for the most part, the Celtics are playing good defense this season. I think that that is one of the reasons to be optimistic about this team that, you know, when that starting five that started the game against Philadelphia are healthy, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're an elite defensive, defensive lineup, you know, with Smart, with Brown, Jason Tatum, uh, Al Horford and Robert Williams, you know, Horford's had a great season so far, you know, Tatum's had a tough time. He struggled to shoot. Um, but I think that you have some certain guys who are, finding a little bit of a rhythm. You know, Smart has led the Celtics in assists in, you know, most of these games, most of the last few games, you take a look, go all the way back to the overtime win against the Bucks on November 12th. Uh, Smart has led the team in assists in every game except for two. You know, he's had eight assists in He's led the team with eight assists in three of the last four games. So I think he kind of is starting to pick it up. We'll talk a little bit about him in a bit in a minute. Um, but I think that, you know, these games upcoming, you know, are going to be really important. Can the Celtics be a team that, you know, can stay healthy for a good period of games and really kind of show what kind of team they're going to be? So I think this could be really important 
you know, kind of litmus test for this team to see where they're really at, you know, playing some of these elite teams, Utah, the Lakers and the Clippers, and then Phoenix. So I think it will be very telling. You know, Jalen Brown, I think, is is kind of someone that concerns me. I mean, he didn't really look totally himself against Philadelphia. He's been battling a hamstring, you know, all season. So hopefully they can have everyone available to go in Utah tonight. But this will be a challenge. You know, Donovan Mitchell is one of the best young players in the game. You have Gobert, who's an outstanding defensive center. Um, the Celtics obviously have had a tough time scoring the ball recently. So, you know, getting off to a good start, I think, is important in this game and I think in all these games, you know, on the West Coast. So very curious to see what, what happens tonight, what happens in the trip. Um, you know, I think that Jalen Brown probably be the only person that would be uh, questionable for this game. He's been questionable the last few games with, you know, injury management, trying to get back to full strength with the, with the hamstring. But, you know, I think if the Celtics can have Josh Richardson and Rob Williams and, and Schroeder and some of those guys healthy, I think it'll be huge. You know, Richardson's been a guy that really has impressed me this season. You know, I thought that he was, you know, a solid bench pickup, but he really has been able to do some good things offensively, been able to create his own shot, find his shot. And I think that getting bench scoring and getting guys who can shoot and score the ball off the bench is huge. Um, you know, I think that you would like some of the young guys to get a little bit more of an opportunity, but I think, you know, there are some players that I think are in a situation where it's just not really at all the same for what it was last season. Peyton Pritchard, I think is exactly who I'm talking about. You know, I think, He's a guy that, you know, really had to play a lot, really had to play a lot last season because of some injury and COVID issues. You know, Kemba Walker not being able to play back-to-back games, you know, was a big reason why he averaged 19 minutes a game last year. And I think it's just his role has changed. You know, he's playing a lot of fewer minutes, and I think, you know, it's challenging. It's challenging for a guy who comes in as a rookie, plays a lot, and then, you know, doesn't play a lot. The, his second season, you know, I think it's challenging, but I think he has to find a role. He has to find something that he can be good at so that he can come into a game and, you know, have a skill set that the Celtics, you know, can use. So I think <clears throat> shooting and scoring off the bench is something the Celtics really kind of need to have more consistency with. Um, but I've liked Richardson, you know, Rob Williams when he's healthy and impacting the game at a high level, you know, I think the Celtics are a really, really good team, you know, when he can be at his best and be an athletic force, you know, defensively on the boards, but then also also offensively, you know, being a, being a lob threat really anytime he's on the floor. So, It's going to be um, a really telling five-game stretch for the Celtics to see, you know, where they're really at as a team. And I think, you know, it's it's huge to have a healthy roster because I think you can really tell, you know, what kind of team the Celtics are going to be. Um, it's huge for the success of this team, I think. But I think it's also important for continuity reasons, too, I think. You know, going into a game knowing that you're going to have guys available game to game.
you know, it's huge. So be curious to see what, what happens with the Celtics. You know, Marcus Smart, as I mentioned, has been a guy whose assists have been up recently. And I think, you know, despite the thought of, of some people thinking that, you know, he is someone that, that needs to be traded, you know, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's to a certain extent, it's not totally fair to, you know, make that, make that assumption after, you know, 22 games with a new coach, with Marcus in a new role. You know, this is a role that he's not been in, you know, pretty much his whole career. You know, I think the Celtics want him to be the primary ball distributor. And, you know, if you look at those assist numbers, you know, they're up pretty high. You know, if he's having, you know, games where he has seven, eight, six, seven, eight assists, you know, that's fine. You know, that his shot attempts hopefully are down, that he's not taking too many needless shots. But I think, you know, he's, he's learning. And I know that that, that kind of, that phrase probably frustrates people because it's like, oh, he's been in the league for so long, but he's in a role that he's not been in. You have a new coach that I think is, has been a good fit for this team. And I think, you know, he's a guy that obviously brings it defensively and kind of gives this team a, a, a shot in the arm most nights defensively. Um, but I think it's just, as I said, you know, with the health of this team, it's the, the continuity, you know, is huge for, for this team. This team, I felt like had no continuity last year, you know, and was one of the bigger reasons why they had, you know, such a poor season because, you know, you literally had no idea who was available game to game, you know, which is not, not a recipe for success. So, you know, hopefully having the consistency of having a guy like Marcus Smart in the lineup and, you know, performing at the level that the team expects, you know, is, is, is really important for, for, for this team going forward. So I think, you know, obviously big games this weekend, Celtics in Utah and in Portland uh, tonight and Saturday. So Utah tonight, Portland tomorrow, then they will play the Lakers and the Clippers back-to-back nights next week, Tuesday against the Lakers, Wednesday against the Clippers, and then they will be in Phoenix next Friday at 10 o'clock. We will take a look at some notes from around uh, the NBA. Obviously, the Phoenix Suns winning their 18th straight game last night. Uh, Pretty impressive stuff that they're doing. Obviously, the team that came up short in the finals last year Um, but clearly a team that's put it together is definitely, you know, proved that that, you know, trip to the finals is not a fluke as they've won 18 in a row and play the Warriors tonight, which will be a really, really good game. You know, both of those teams, only three losses so far this season, Phoenix 19 and three and Golden State 18 and three. Um, Obviously the Warriors getting probably will be getting Clay Thompson and James Wiseman back soon from injury, you know, just make that team so much more dangerous. Um, So 18th straight win for the Suns. And then obviously the Celtics will play Portland tomorrow night Um, in Portland, the uh, Memphis Grizzlies 
quite a night last night, scoring 152 points and beating the Oklahoma City Oklahoma City Thunder by 73 points, which set an NBA record for the most for the biggest point differential in NBA history. Uh, LeBron James will return for the Lakers after I think just missed one game because of the COVID protocols, but tested negative a couple days in a like within 24 hours, so he will be available. Um, the Bucks, Robin Lopez, Brooke Lopez, excuse me, having uh, back surgery, so no timetable for that. Um, so yeah, a lot of uh, exciting time to be to be an NBA fan. I think taking a look at some of the teams this year that have been really, really good. You know, really, it's Golden State and Phoenix that have kind of set the pace. Uh, taking a look at the standings, Brooklyn still leads the East, but only by a game over Chicago and a game and a half over Washington. Uh, Cleveland Cavaliers have had a pretty good start to this season, 12-10. and 10. They've won three straight games. Uh, Charlotte and the Knicks have struggled recently, dropping consecutive games. Um, and then you have Phoenix, obviously, 18 straight wins. Um, Golden State in second, Utah in third, followed by Dallas, Memphis, the, and then the Lakers. Minnesota Timberwolves have been playing well recently, seven wins in their last Seven wins in their last ten. They're currently in the eighth spot in the uh, Western Conference. So taking a look at Major League Baseball, we'll get to some uh, MLB stuff. Obviously, the uh, obviously there is a, a lockout going on. Um, you know, you have to be living under a rock to not be uh, noticing that this is going on. But obviously, the a collective bargaining agreement expired at 11.59 on Wednesday. The last bargaining agreement was agreed to in 2016. So ends at midnight and uh, owners locking out the players and, um, you know, no, no player signings, no player trades uh, happening at the moment. So I think you know, it's uh, not, not a great time to be a baseball fan. You know, I think this is unfortunate that it's reached this point. You know, I think that there were conversations about this happening a year ago, and it just is kind of wild that there's not been any type of resolution. But, you know, easier, easier set. Like, I don't know, easy, easy for me to say. Um, so obviously no free agent signings, no uses of team facilities, Um there is not a lot. There is actually no contact a lot of any kind between teams and players. Um, there could, there can technically be trades that can not be agreed to, but like there could be a trade out there that gets completed, you know, once the lockout ends. But, you know, I think that it's the, so there's good news and bad news. I think the good news is there are people that don't expect that this is going to affect the season that, you know, chances are they should be able to play 162 games next season um, because it's, you know, three months until the season starts. Um, I think that obviously there is a chance that spring training can get delayed. Um, but I think, I think it just, both sides, I think, have to recognize that losing any games would just be devastating. And I think, you know, would would just be really challenging to be able to kind of 
not not here it would be very challenging to defend you know if they weren't able to get something done um so i think yes the good news is there's a lot of time before the season starts really the bad news is though it doesn't seem like the owners and the players are you know close to any type of agreement so you know one of the key things i think of this um and i'm reading this from an espn article on the lockout by jesse rogers you can go read this on espn.com so unfortunately i'm probably gonna sound like i'm reading off the script here but this is what he has written about what is the main sticking point in the negotiations between the owners and the players he says economics players feel with the emergence of analytics within front offices that fewer and fewer second and third tier players are getting paid when they finally become free agents after six years of major league service major league service time which is often when a player turns 30 or close to it in general players would like to be paid more at younger ages because that's when they are in their prime the system also favors keeping players in minor leagues for several weeks extra to slow down their major league service time players hate that. additionally they feel a cycle of teams rebuilding aka tanking is limiting payrolls they would like some guardrails within the system to prevent those cycles. One good thing for the players, as long as there is no salary cap, the system will always pay the best to the best, something the league likes to emphasize. Owners haven't even offered a hard cap during negotiation. So basically, what this means is, and you know, this is something that I've noticed in the last off-seasons, that there are a lot of guys, specifically you know, players that, the players here that are, you know, guys who kind of are, are 30 years old or older after having a certain amount of time of major league service time, you know, don't get paid or don't get, you know, really any types of good contracts. And so you've noticed that a lot of guys haven't been signed until kind of late in the off season, um, you know, a lot later than we typically see. So I think, you know, players would like that, you know, they would like to get paid at, you know, younger ages because, you know, when they're reaching a certain age, they're not getting paid as much. Um, and then also, you know, I think that it's kind of, a, you know, this key part right here that um, he talks about the system favoring keeping players in the minor leagues so that, you know, they don't reach the service time, you know, and, you know, that's kind of, that's a little shady if you ask me. Um, and so I think, you know, that's kind of one of the biggest sticking points is economics, you know, it's money. You know, I think that that's really kind of the biggest thing, which, you know, shocker is, is you know, something that's being argued about. Um, so I think, you know, it's, there's definitely been something that um, is also written in this article that, you know, there's not really there's definitely a disconnect between major league baseball players and the owners. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of, you know, a key date, as um, Jesse Rogers says, you know, using February 1st as a soft deadline, um, you know, I think that it's, you know, obviously mid-February is usually when, when camps will open. So I think, 
you know, February 1st, if they're able to get something done by that date, then that would mean that probably, you know, they would be able to get a full season in. You know, I think it's going to be interesting that I think there is a lot of time, I think, in this month and obviously January to meet and kind of get things done because I think as obviously the calendar turns to February and later, like, then it could really start to be, or just start to see an issue. Um, and then one of the things that I think, um, something that was, that was interesting in this article also is that, uh, the league would like to expand the postseason, you know, to, to 14 teams to try to get more teams in the playoffs. Um, pitch clock maybe gets implemented, um, you could see some changes to um, designated hitter, possibly. Um, you might see some changes to the arbitration system, which I'll be honest, I don't totally fully understand. So, um, you know, could get interesting. I mean, I think that there are a ton of things on the table, but hopefully, you know, there is enough time in this offseason that something can get agreed upon. Um, so I think, you know, like I said, I think the good news is there's a lot of time. The not so great news is I don't think the sides are necessarily close to agreeing because I think that, you know, both sides kind of are, not to say stuck in their ways, but I think, you know, that, that service time thing that I was, you know, reading is kind of pretty significant. And I just feel like I don't know how they'd be able to come to a good compromise. Um, so, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Um, so I think now we'll get into some of the moves the Red Sox have made uh, this offseason. They brought in a couple of pitchers, a couple of interesting signings. Uh, Rich Hill was brought in, I think, right before. So the lockout, I think, officially went official midnight on Thursday. So, you know, the Red Sox were able to get some things in before then. So Rich Hill returns to the Red Sox after a couple of years elsewhere. He's 41 years old, but continues to be a guy that can pitch, pitch good solid innings. So it'd be interesting to see what their plan is for him. You know, if he'll be in the rotation, I would expect that that is going to be what happens. Um, they also brought in James Paxton, former pitcher for the Yankees and the Mariners. I believe that he will miss approximately half the season recovering from Tommy John. So, you know, they'll be without him for a good period of time, but then he'll come in. Uh, Michael Walker was also signed from the Rays. You may remember him as pitching as a player pitched for the Cardinals a couple years ago um, in the World Series when the Red Sox played the Cardinals. Well, it was eight years ago. It wasn't It wasn't a few years ago. It was a pretty long time ago, but he's been in the league uh, for a bit. You know, it was somewhat effective for the Rays last year, so it'll be interesting to see what the Red Sox plan is for this rotation. You know, obviously, losing Eduardo Rodriguez to the Tigers, you know, and obviously Garrett Richards and Martin Perez not returning, so... I think the Red Sox were trying to kind of not, not load up, so to speak, but I think get a number of different guys that I think can pitch in the rotation but can also pitch out of the bullpen. Um, you know, I think most likely the Red Sox are going to use, you know, Sale, Ivaldi, and Pavetta as kind of their top three and then go with a combination of Tanner Houck, uh, Waka, Paxton, and Hill, you know, or there's maybe another starter that the Red Sox bring in. Um, at some point. So I think, you know, they're kind of trying to 
mitigate the loss of Rodriguez, who, you know, I think for the most part didn't pitch great last year. He did pitch well kind of as the season went along, but I think that it's not a terrible strategy. You know, I think that there are some people that would have liked to see them spend big for someone like Max Scherzer, but I think, you know, you have a guy in Hauk that I think you've seen flashes of, and I think that give him a full season to be a starter, and I think that you could see some big things out of him, and I think, you know, if he can do that, you can get a solid season out of Pavetta. You know, you have four pretty good starters right there, and then whoever that fifth starter is, you know, whether it's Rich Hill, is it Paxton, is it Waka, you know, do you use these guys out of the bullpen? You know, it's not a half-bad rotation. Um, I think in terms of what they're doing offensively, I think is a little bit more of a mystery. Uh, the Red Sox trading Hunter Renfro to the Brewers for Jackie Bradley and a couple of prospects. I think that uh, one of the prospects is pretty good, but I'm not sure which one is the good one. Uh, Hamilton, and I forget the other guy, but I think he played at Louisville as a pretty good power bat. His name is escaping me right now. Um, but they bring in Jackie Bradley, which I think, look, I think that this trade is very similar to the Benintendi Franchi Cordero trade. I think this is very similar to that in that this is not a one-for-one trade, as I think some people in the media are tending to tell you that it is, that this is a straight-up Jackie Bradley for Hunter Renfro trade, which it's not. You know, obviously, that trade would be crazy. You know, that trade would be bananas. But I think you have to understand that, like, it's not a one-for-one trade. It's not really that hard to figure out. Like, the Red Sox are getting more back, you know, and I think this could also be that the Red Sox figured that maybe they were going to lose Hunter Renfro free agency and try to, you know, get something for him. But I don't necessarily think that this means that Jackie Bradley is definitely going to be back every day center fielder for the Red Sox. Like, I think there could be more to this move than some people think. And I think, you know, everyone wanted to make that, that trade last year about Benintendi for Cordero, and, oh, Cordero is terrible, Benintendi's been playing well, oh, this is an awful trade. And it's not the point, and it's also not the point of this trade either, but I think certain people would like to lead you to believe that that's what it is, and that's what, you know, popular talk radio are going to talk about, and Jackie Bradley, and how much he can't hit, and this and that, you know, which is which is legitimate. He's a guy that, that has struggled hitting the ball for, 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 for a long time. Um, and Renfro had a really good season for the Red Sox last year, but I think there's more to this move than meets the eye, and I think that this could signal a couple, couple of different things. Are the Red Sox, you know, positioning themselves to make a big move at some point? You know, are they trying to bring in someone like Carlos, Cor- Carlos Correa? You know, are they trying to bring in an outfielder? Are they trying to you know, bring back Schwarber, you know, I think that this move could make it more likely that he does return and that he does return into the outfield and, you know, give you a good solid bat. So I'm curious to see, you know, what some of these signings, you know, mean for for the Red Sox. Obviously, there are no player signings that are allowed at this time, but, you know, hopefully with any luck, the lockout gets figured out in the next few weeks and the Red Sox can get back to trying to figure out what they're going to do. There's also been a lot of big signings that have happened. Obviously, Max Scherzer getting a big deal with the Mets. The Mets are going to be a very hard team to hit against. I will tell you that. Like, 
DeGrom has been one of the best pitchers, if not the best pitcher in baseball over the last few years. And then you have Scherzer, who's obviously been very good for a very long time, getting a lot of money from the Mets. But, you know, and Eric Belly is going to hate me when I say this, but, you know, the, the Mets are a team that, you know, sure, you can get a pitching staff, but, I mean, if, if you can't hit and you can't score runs, you're not going to do very well. So, you know, I'm not totally sold on that team. Um, you know, and pitching, obviously, is going to be big. You know, it's going to be a big part of their success, but kind of like what happened last year, they couldn't really score a lot of runs. So I think, you know, until until they're a team that can score consistent runs every game, like I have a hard time taking them seriously. Um, Texas also, you know, doled out a big amount of money to Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, you know, two guys that have been really, really good hitters for a good period of time. Simeon obviously set the major league record for most home runs by his second baseman, and then Seager obviously had some good seasons with the Dodgers. So both of those guys are going to be in Texas. Texas, you know, had the money to spend. You know, they're they're a bad team. They were a bad team last year, so it kind of remains to be seen. You know, if these signings are truly going to make them a better team, um, Javier Baez signing a big deal with Detroit. You know, another team that I think was able to dole out a lot of money because they can. Um, but I think with some of these teams spending a lot of money, I don't know if it's really going to be worth it. You know, and naturally, with the Red Sox not spending a lot of money, there tends to be a lot of conversation that, oh, the Red Sox are, are going cheap. But I will just tell you that with the last ownership that or with the last, you know, general manager, it spent a lot of money. I mean, look where it got you. Didn't really get you anywhere. You know, sure, we won, it won your World Series title in 2018, but, you know, you had some bad contracts that you had to get rid of. And it's just like, do you really want the Red Sox making that very same mistake again? It's just like, it just kind of blows my mind that, like, that's still the, the narrative that, oh, the Red Sox are not spending money. Oh, they're the Tampa Bay Rays. Well, you know, look what happened last year. Did you not pay attention to what they did last year doing pretty much the very same thing this offseason? And not to say that they're done, not to say that they're not going to do anything in the offseason. It's just like, it's just funny to me that there are certain people that spent the whole year, you know, complaining about the Red Sox and, you know, telling you every time they, you know, suck or, you know, play poorly. And then look what happened. They were two wins from the World Series. So, you know, I don't know. It just kind of frustrates me that, like, you don't need to spend a lot of money to be successful. I mean, how does that, how is that so hard for people to grasp? And it's like, also take a look at some of those teams that are spending a lot of money. I don't know if all those teams are going to be in the playoffs. You know, spending money in the off season does not win you anything. Or it's not, it's not, or it, I should say it's not a guarantee of anything. You know, look at the Dodgers and look at all the big, big time players that they brought in. You know, what did it get them? You know, losing in the in the division series, their ALC or NLCS, whatever it was. You know, it's just like this is how it's going to be for the Red Sox. And honestly, looking at the track record, it was pretty good last year. So I think, you know, you can make all the jokes you want about the the ownership buying the Pittsburgh Penguins. I will just tell you, like, if you're going to make jokes like that, it's kind of 
in bad faith because it has nothing to do with the team spending money. You know, it's just like, I don't know if there's some people that just are never going to be happy and that's just the reality of the situation. But, you know, it's not like a lost offseason because they're not spending $300 million to sign Corey Seager. Like, are we really, are we really doing this? That Like, oh, you have to spend big money or else, you know, you're going to be, and it's, it's also, it is also funny to me how, like, there's certain people in this town that make fun of the Red Sox for not spending a lot of money and t- saying that they're the Tampa Bay Rays. Well, the Tampa Bay Rays won 100 games last year. They've been one of the better teams in baseball over the last few years, and they've not spent a lot of money. So it's like, what are, like, what are we really making fun of here? Are we really making fun of a team that wins a lot of games but doesn't spend money? It just is backwards to me it's just it's just strange but you know conversation for a further conversation for another day I think um so I think we will go to some college football and it's been crazy a crazy week for college football you know you had some of the rivalry games last week that were crazy you had some coaching changes and you got the college football playoff, you know, rankings that will come out on Sunday and that will determine the top four. So before we get any, get into anything else, I just did want to talk about the coaching hires, Lincoln Riley to USC, Brian Kelly to LSU. And obviously a lot's been made about both of those, you know, signings, but I will just say in, and this is just my opinion, you know, this doesn't carry any weight. If it carries weight for some of you, well, and I'm honored, but, you know, I just think in my opinion, these guys that take, you know, these big offers to go elsewhere, it doesn't need to happen in, in, in during the season. I just, I've never really heard a good defense for, you know, coaches just leaving the school that they're currently at, you know, before the season's over and taking a big deal to go to another school. It's just like, it just really rubs me the wrong way. And look, I understand that these are opportunities of a lifetime, you know, that they'll, the coaches will tell you, and they are, you know, not to say that they aren't, you know, but it just is like, I don't know, it rubs me the wrong way that, you know, Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly, it's like, you guys still like, like that team still has a bowl game. And not to say that bowl games really matter, because honestly, most of them don't, but I don't know, it just rubs me the wrong way that you are still you know, in a season with a team and you sign a big contract elsewhere. And it's just like, what kind of message of confidence does that send to your players? You know, that like, it essentially just is like, I don't know if, you know, and I don't know, I shouldn't say that, oh, the coach doesn't care about them, but it's like, it kind of looks that way. You know, when you take a, a big deal to join another school, you know, in the middle of, you know, a season. And I know it's the end of the season and I know that it's not, you know, a big part of the season, but still it just, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way when, when you see that happen, you know, what's, what's the difference between accepting this job now and accepting it, you know, once the season's over, you know, I get for recruiting, but I don't know. It just is uh, always kind of a strange thing when, when that happens, but seriously, you know, two of the bigger high, like two of the most high profile coaches in college football, you know, joining other big schools. So it'd be, be interesting to see how that changes. You know, I think that there was a recruit that actually changed his commitment 
to USC, thanks to uh, Lincoln Riley moving. You know, I will just say from me being a pretty fairly neutral college football fan over the years, it'll be really cool to see, uh, hopefully get USC back on the map. It's always, you know, it's always fun when they're good. You know, I think that I say the same thing for LSU. It's kind of funny because they were really good last year, but, you know, I think that getting USC back on the map would be really, really neat. So hopefully that happens, but the coaching hire stuff just, I don't know, just, just really rubs me the wrong way. So I'll take a look at some of the championship games going on this weekend for college football. You have the Big 12 championship, or excuse me, actually tonight is the Pac-12 championship, uh, 10th ranked Oregon against 17th ranked Utah. I wouldn't expect that either of these teams get into the playoff by this game being played in Las Vegas tonight at 8. I wouldn't expect that either of these teams get into the playoffs, you know, unless something absolutely insane happens in both of these teams with two losses. But it would be interesting to see how that game shakes out. That game is tonight at 8 o'clock on ABC. And then tomorrow, the Big 12 championship game, ninth-ranked Baylor against 5th-ranked Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State, I think, if they can get a win, they will have a very good argument to get into the playoff. This game is at noon at AT&T Stadium in Texas. And then at 4 o'clock, you have the SEC Championship between top-ranked Georgia and number 3-ranked Alabama. I think things would get very, very interesting if Georgia is able to beat Alabama because I think there will be some teams that uh, may have an argument over Alabama um, should they lose. But I will say that if Alabama is able to beat Georgia, I don't think you're going to see any big major changes in the top four. I think Georgia would still make it even with a loss. Uh, Fourth-ranked Cincinnati plays 21st-ranked Houston at 4 o'clock in Ohio for the big for the AAC championship. Uh, Georgia and Alabama is in Atlanta. This Cincinnati Houston is in um, it's in Ohio, so that will be interesting. Cincinnati, I think you could imagine if they win, they are certainly in as the fourth ranked team in the country. And then the Big Ten championship is eight o'clock on Fox in Indianapolis. I have to think that Michigan is in. If they can win, possibility that if they lose, things could get very dicey. Um, and then you have the ACC championship, 15th ranked Pittsburgh against 16 Wake Forest. I don't think that is going to affect the playoff, but worth mentioning those games. So I think taking a look at the rankings, I'll give you guys, you know, my opinion here for these, uh, for what the ranking should be. So I think what should happen if Georgia and Michigan and Cincinnati win? They are all in. I think you, we can definitely agree that all three of those teams should be in if they win. Um, things will get very interesting if Alabama is to lose against Georgia and Oklahoma State is to win against Baylor because then that leads it to, okay, Alabama is a two-loss team, did not win a conference championship, and Oklahoma State is 12-1 and and won a conference championship. Um, so I think then you kind of look at their losses. You know, Oklahoma State has been one of the better defensive teams all season. Their one blemish was a road loss to an unranked Iowa State team. So that was their that was their one loss. Um, and then Alabama obviously had a loss earlier this season 
on the road to Texas A&M, I believe was, I believe that they were unranked at the time, but I believe that they are 25th in the country right now. So that would be Alabama's one loss. And then obviously if they lost to Georgia, that would be their second loss. I don't think you hold that loss against them. Um, but I think in terms of the recent history with the committee, I think has placed emphasis on winning your conference championship. So that's why, in my opinion, I think Oklahoma State should get in if Alabama loses to Georgia. You know, I think that sure a lot of people want to see Georgia and Alabama play against each other as many times as possible, but I think that it, it it's only right. I think if Oklahoma State gets in, I don't think Notre Dame gets in. I don't think that their schedule was super strong. I mean, they did. Their only loss was to Cincinnati, but, you know, you look at their schedule, they really don't have an impressive win other than the win in a neutral site against Wisconsin earlier this season, but they did not play any other ranked teams, I think, during the season. So, you know, I don't think that they're getting in. You know, I think there's a possibility should Alabama and Oklahoma State lose, there could be a possibility that Notre Dame could sneak in. Um, but I think, in my opinion, you're going to see Georgia win the SEC championship. You're going to see Michigan win the Big Ten. You'll see Cincinnati beat Houston. I think all three of those teams, it doesn't matter how they win. If they win, then they're in. And then I think Alabama, if they lose, Oklahoma State wins. Then I think Oklahoma State should get in. Then I think in terms of the seeding, it could change, you know, depending on how some of these games go. But I think Georgia, if they win in any fashion, they're still at number one. I'd say the same thing for Michigan. If they win in any fashion, they're still number two. I think that if Alabama were to lose to Georgia, you know, by a couple touchdowns, then I think Oklahoma probably, Oklahoma State would probably jump them if they win in any fashion. Cincinnati, I think, for them to get the third spot, I think they would have to win pretty convincingly against Houston. But I think what's going to happen is Oklahoma State will um, get the win over Baylor. Alabama will lose. Oklahoma State will jump to third. And I think Cincinnati will stay at four. So in my opinion, I think you will see Georgia versus Cincinnati and then Oklahoma State against Michigan um, in the in the two semifinal games. So the um, ranking show, the final ranking show, will come out um, Sunday after all the conference championships. So that's what I believe will happen. You'll have Georgia, Michigan, Oklahoma State, and Cincinnati being the final four. Um, obviously, any types of things could happen. We've seen all types of crazy things happen. But I really think that, you know, I don't think that any of these teams with two losses are going to get in, you know. Could there be an argument for Baylor if they are able to beat Oklahoma State and like Cincinnati loses and Alabama loses? There could be an argument there, but I think other than that, I don't really see any other team having, you know, a legitimate argument to get into the playoff. You know, Notre Dame, I think, is going to be very lucky to get in, but I think Oklahoma State certainly has a lot to play for. Uh, Cincinnati does too, Michigan, Georgia, for sure. Um, game I'm most looking forward to watching is Georgia and Alabama. It's always a treat to be able to watch both of those teams. Um, 
but I think Alabama will be out of the playoff. I think that will be the one team that I think does drop out um, if Oklahoma State wins. If Oklahoma State doesn't win, then I think you could see Alabama still being in there with two losses. Um, things would kind of get interesting there. So that's probably it for college football. We're going to close on talking about the revolution. Unfortunately, the season came to an end on Tuesday night against NYCFC. Um, you know, I think just initial thoughts from that game. I think that the, the long break hurt the Revs. I really think that, you know, being off for 23 days takes a toll. And I think that it's just very difficult to kind of have the have your fit back, you know, in that game after not playing a game for 23 days. I mean, sure, you can, you know, play a scrimmage in game conditions at night in the in, in, at Gillette Stadium. But there's no replacement for fans, the opposing team, and things like that. So um, I think the revolution just, it just, I think that the break hurt them. You know, certainly were they able to get some goals? Absolutely. It was huge that Adam Buxa could get that tying goal, you know, within the first 10 minutes. Um, but it just seemed like there were certain guys like Gustavo Bo that just, it just wasn't there. And I think that the the break hurt them. And I think, you know, it's not really a, t- a game that you look at and say, oh, okay, the Revolution need to go and fix this part of their game so that they can win. You know, I just think the break hurt them. And I think that the players and the coach will tell you that that's not the case. But it's pretty obvious to tell that, you know, that was kind of the case. You had NYC coming in after a win um, in their last game in the first round. The Reds get a bye. So I think... You know, in normal circumstances, if they just had a first round bye, I don't think they would have been off for 23 days. But I think that the international break coming in right after the end of the season, you know, tacked on probably an extra eight to 10 days there. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. I don't want to sit here and complain about it. Um, but I do think that that definitely played a factor. Um, you know, I thought that NYC, though, you know, you got to give them credit. They played a really good road game, you know, and they were really not able to or really did not allow the Revolution to get an attacking rhythm really at any point in the game. Um, you know, I think that it was just disappointing that, you know, Tijon Buchanan playing his last game for the Revs, you know, ended the way that it did. I mean, it was awesome to see him getting that tying goal, you know, with minutes left. And I think really the the revolution, their chance to win that game was in those minutes after Buchanan scored that they had, you know, minutes and some chances to, you know, get a winning goal. And I think that NYC at that point was playing with two players down, essentially. Castellanos was taken off, was sent off for a red card, and then they had one of their defenders that was, you know, hurt and basically on one leg. So the revolution, you know, really had, I think, their chances there to win the game, but, you know, what can you do? It's just uh, disappointing that the game had to come down to PKs, and, you know, it's always kind of a crapshoot. You know, I know that there is skill to it. I'm not going to deny that, but at the same time, it's just like, it's kind of just a 50-50 shot. So, you know, just unfortunate that uh, Buxa was the only guy to miss in the shootout. Everyone else scored, um, and the season's over. So it just is... Unfortunate that I think the Revs just maybe playing under a little too much pressure and playing, you know, with all those all those days off. But, you know, the good thing out of this loss and 
it's hard to take positives after a loss like this, after the season that they had. Um, but a lot of key guys are returning. You know, Tayshawn Buchanan really is the only key player that definitely will not return next season as he goes to play um, overseas in Belgium. But I think, you know, Matt Turner winning goalie of the year. He had four guys, including Buchanan and Turner, that made the, made the MLS best 11, which is essentially the MLS version of all pro for football. Um, you know, Carlos Hill will be back. Gustavo Bo will be back. Adam Buxa will be back. You know, your, your three key players, your three DPs will be back. So I think that will be huge. Uh, Dewan Jones, I think, had signed a contract maybe a couple days before the game. I know Brandon By had signed a contract extension at some point. So, you know, Dewan Jones actually played a really good game on Tuesday. So it's good to see that he'll be back. Um, but, you know, it just, it, it sucks. You know, I'm not going to tell you that it doesn't, you know, anytime you have a team that, a local team that, you know, does really well and you think that, you know, there's nothing that can go wrong and it does, you know, but it, it does suck when your team loses. But the good news is I think the revolution finally have a lot of momentum going as a franchise and you know, as a team that, you know, they can get some momentum going to build a, a new stadium, which I think really is kind of the next step for them. Um, but disappointing way to go out, disappointing way to lose in the shootout. But, um, you know, hopefully the Revolution are back in this spot next year and, you know, can go and win the whole thing. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see who comes back um, this season. I mean, there could be a possibility the Revolution lose some guys. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Matt Turner gets some, you know, interest from leagues in Europe. Um, and so could it be a possible situation that does he play overseas next year once the season's over? You know, we'll see. But the key guys will be back, so that will be the important thing. So um, I think that probably does it for, for us this week for not your average Boston sports podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook. You can listen on Spotify and on Apple Music. Everyone uh, have a good weekend. Stay warm. It's getting cold out there. And uh, we will uh, talk to you next week.